people like that that are willing to go to that level of effort to to learn those systems and make them really, really effective, yeah, do whatever you want. Um, I think the lady that walks to the gun counter and says, hey, I'm looking for my first gun, that is a horrible choice um, because we... <laughs> I know I'm beating a dead horse. I've written about Welcome back, Marksman Tribe, to another episode of Everyday Marksman Radio. This is episode number four, an interview with Justin Carroll, the revolver guy. If you're new to the show, then welcome. My name is Matt Robertson, and this is Everyday Marksman Radio, where we discuss tactical skills for an adventurous life. I'm really happy with today's episode because it's something I knew very little about going into this, and there was really very little preparation time. A quick story on this was that Justin reached out just to let me know that he appreciated what we were doing on the website and that he wanted to help in any way he could. I happened to take a look at his website and realized he's really into revolvers and writes another blog over at revolverguy.com. So I invited him on the show and then within 24 hours we recorded this interview. So it was very kind of off the cuff, which actually was really cool to do. Now in this wide ranging discussion, we talked about a lot of topics. We're going to start off with Justin's background, kind of how he got to doing revolvers, especially from his background in the Marines, and which is not known for his revolver use. We're going to talk about who is the ideal user for a revolver. So if you're new to shooting, or you're super experienced, or you have a little bit of experience, which which category do you fall into as something that you might want to consider picking up that extra little new way of learning how to do things? We're also going to talk about some myth-busting. Right, so there's a lot of common myths out there about how revolvers are different than semi-autos. Are they better? Are they worse? Are they more reliable? Are they less reliable? Well, we're going to get into all of that. So uh, buckle in. And as always, guys, if you are pressed for time, go ahead and skip those last 10 minutes or so and catch my major takeaways from the episode. Today's show notes are found at everydaymarksman.co slash revolver. Once again, that's everydaymarksman.co slash revolver you can find everything there you'll find some quotes you'll find some pictures you'll find links to all the things we talk about so go ahead and check out the show notes when you get a chance and by the way if you're new to the podcast i really would appreciate if you left me a review at your podcast player of choice great guys let's get on to it So I'm very excited for today's guest. I have former Marine Corps Force Reconnaissance member, author of several books on personal digital security, including ComSec, off-the-grid communication strategies for privacy enthusiasts, journalists, politicians, crooks, and the average Joe. And as interested as I am in that, and I would love to talk more about it, today's guest also happens to be a revolver enthusiast, serving as editor-in-chief of revolverguide.com. He's been published in Guns Magazine, American Handgunner, and is the current contributor on the Lucky Gunner Lounge. So I want to welcome Justin Carroll. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, man. Oh, absolutely. I was, uh, you know, this was like a really fast pace. Like you sent me an email the other day and I was like, wow, I really like what this guy has to say. I want to do a podcast. And it was like, boom, we're, we're doing it. Yeah, kind of the same thing on this end. I found you through, and we were talking in the email, I found you through Greg Elfritz's blog, and I think he had, he, I think he posted a link to uh, what you need in your, your minimum capability rifle, and I was immediately hooked, man. I, I spent like the next month reading everything on your blog, so yeah. Oh, wow, I appreciate that. Yeah, that was a that was a fun one to write, but it's funny how often. Uh, so for the re- for anybody listening who hasn't read that particular post, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but it's a whole post of kind of what I've learned about what the first your first rifle should look like, and it's way less than most people think they need to get started. 
Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely agree, man. And um, I used to be the guy that was building um, just AR after AR, trying to improve like every tiny little thing. And uh, basically now I have one BCM Recce 14 and, and, and that's it, man. Like no changes to it, just sights and lights and a sling. And that's, that does everything I need to do and can do it better than I can do it. There's, there's no reason to spend twice that amount of money for this, like a modest upgrade, I guess. Absolutely. That's, that's preach, (laughs) preach. (laughs) So, um, so one of the reasons I had to be on today is you know I heard you a while back on the air with Tom Gresham over at Gun Talk, and you, you made an interesting point that revolvers are legal in all fifty states, and it was valuable to you because your location was otherwise air quoting non permissive. So I kind of want to start there. And how did you go from carrying nineteen elevens and a Berettas to a Smith and Wesson revolver, which I believe is your preferred brand, if I'm not mistaken? Well, that uh, we'll we'll talk about Smith and Wesson later. I um, uh, I don't want to bash them, but um, so yeah, I started out in I, I, no real handgun experience at all as a prior to the military and joined the Marine Corps and got a little bit of time with the Beretta, um, the M nine service pistol and, but no serious instruction. I got to go to, to a pistol call before I had any real instruction at all. And I didn't do that well. And uh, I, I actually ended up carrying a Beretta on my first deployment after I had had some instruction and, and had really not a lot of complaints about the Beretta at all. Uh, but when I got into a force recon platoon, uh, I was issued, uh, uh, the Musoc 45, which is a precision weapon shop customized 1911. Uh, there's still a few of those kicking around. Uh, I, I think Marsoc as a component's gone to, uh, Glocks, but, uh, ca- yeah, I carried a 1911 for several years there. And uh, that's kind of the platform I it, re- really difficult platform for me to get away from. I currently carry a 1911 now uh, just because of the intensity of that experience with it and the massive uh, tens of thousands of rounds through through that gun. Um, it's it's what I always come back to uh, kind of through that ph- phenomenon of primacy of learning uh, that pilots will talk about the first platform they uh, fly and spend significant airtime in is the platform that they will like embed habits that will last a lifetime of flying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's kind of where I'm at with that gun. So, uh, I got out of that. I spent a couple of years working for another government agency on a contractual basis, still going overseas. And I carried Glocks, uh, Glock 19s and Glock 17s there. And, uh, they're, they're awesome guns, nothing wrong with them. Uh, but I, 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 I don't know. They're just not my preferred, uh, my preferred handgun, I guess. So oh, I'm right. I'm right. I'm right there with you, man. Okay, that's like I, I, I write about it. Like, there's nothing wrong with Glock. I just don't like it. Yeah. What's your uh, What's that article? Uh, don't let perfection be the enemy of good <laughs> yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Just I know <laughs> I was picking on Glock for it. Like, it's not like they're bad, but you know, it's one of those. Like, things somebody pointed out that it's like a lot of people will just get told, "Oh, go buy Glock 19," and they go buy that, and that's all they shoot. They don't shoot enough. And don't really develop preferences and they never really see what else is available. But then they go out on these message boards and they're like, Glock this, you need to get a Glock. And it's just like feeds into the ecosystem when there's some really good other pistols out there. Yeah. In fairness, the Glock is a phenomenally good handgun. Um, I think, uh, I think even with uh, legions and legions of fanboys, if it wasn't good, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't enjoy the success that it does. 
but I also believe there's a good deal of dogma in this community. And, and if you're not carrying a Glock 19 and one spare magazine and a tourniquet and a clinch pick and a, you know, a surefire, whatever handheld light, um, you're and fiber optic sites and, and whatever, you're going to get killed in the streets. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I'm, I'm laughing over here because I just, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I think there's uh yeah, I, I think there's a, kind of a specific dogma that a subset of, of gun owners have subscribed to and anything that deviates from that is just wrong. And man, I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I, my whole philosophy about everything in life is don't get too hung up on anything. I don't really care what gun you carry. Um, it's I, my life doesn't depend on it. We're, we're way down a sidetrack here. But, <laughs> that's fine. Um, Those are always the fun. I, ones. I'm not going to be mad at anybody for what they want to carry, but also don't be mad at me. Man, yep. <laughs> I, I hear that. So, so bringing this back. Sorry, we got on a sidetrack there, but uh, <laughs> so yeah. So, what, so again, coming back to what brought you to revolvers. So, uh, I, I, like I said on Tom's show, I had to move. Uh, had to move to a state where magazine capacity is restricted and the ownership of certain makes and models of firearms are are not permitted. And, um, and believe it or not, I was able to get a concealed carry permit fairly easily in the state, but, uh, the things I could own and carry were a little bit more restricted. And I, I, I probably could have moved to that state with my Glocks, uh, that I was, that I owned at the time, cause that's what I uh, carried for work at the time, but I, I didn't really understand that. So I just said, screw it. I'm, I'm going to go with revolvers. I know they're legal there. And just, I, I've always kind of had a fascination um, growing up in the eighties, um, you know, as a, as a single digit age person in the eighties reading, you know, any gun magazine I could get my hands on revolvers are still very much, you know, they were in cops holsters, they were everywhere. And, uh, I always had a bit of a fascination, but again, no real experience. So, uh, I, I decided, you know, partially based on the necessity of the circumstance of living in a place where, you know, you can't carry a Glock 19 or you, you can, but you got to put a 10 round magazine in it or, you know, find some esoteric pre-band magazine for $200 and with questionable reliability and all that. Um, so, uh, that was a big motivator as well as just kind of wanted to be wanting to be a really well-rounded uh, shooter and not wanting to be, um, I, I, I don't know, a feeling I really like is if I go to a match now, which I don't compete regularly, but occasionally I'll go to an IDPA match or a little local IDPA style match. I could pick anybody's gun, anybody else's gun up and shoot reasonably well with it um, and reload and clear malfunctions and whatever. I know 99% of them could not do the same thing with my gun. So that was a big motivator. I hated that there was this huge segment category of firearms out there that I had really no skill at arms at all with, even though there's millions and millions and millions of them in the country. Um, so that was another big element. It kind of reminds me of like driving stick shift, right? It was like, a, it was a point of pride when I was in college and I had a stick shift car and like none of my friends could drive it. <laughs> well, this is a little bit embarrassing to admit, but I don't know how to drive an automatic because I've always owned manual transmission cars. I'm almost a little jealous on that because, uh, <laughs> so, um, back on to, so yeah, you were saying you were shooting matches and you were, you just kind of felt like you wanted to know how to run, I guess, revolvers, right? Cause that was a different style of pistol. still very common. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so 
I tend to um, I tend to get really into things and go 100 percent uh, at a thing until I reach like 85 percent mastery and then uh, kind of get bored with it and move on to something else. Um, I've done that with uh, like lock picking. I've done that with uh, the privacy and security stuff. I've done that with, uh, you know, a number of things. And uh, so I got to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm doing this with revolvers 100%. I sold everything else I owned except for two revolvers and uh, as far as handguns go. And uh, I just dedicated myself 100% to it. Um, I started testing speed loaders and holsters and carry methods and all these different reloading techniques we you know in the gun, in the semi-auto community there's kind of one way to reload a semi-automatic handgun there's minor differences in how you get that slide back into battery and people will argue about that all day long but the the basic technique is the same but with a revolver that's not the case you may you know maintain your firing grip on on the grip of the revolver and reload with your left hand or you may switch the revolver to your left hand and there's like three different ways to do each of those things. So really started exploring all this foreign equipment, all these totally new techniques. And man, it, it, it was kind of a ride. And I backed off of that a lot now. I now own semi-automatics. I have a, a couple MMPs. I'm really big fan of the MMP line. I have a 1911 that I carry on a daily basis, but Still really, really love revolvers. Uh, shoot them almost every time I go to the range. Dry practice with them a lot. So uh, still very much into it, but not uh, not the purist that I was uh, <laughs> for about three years there. Okay. So actually, it's going to kind of goes to the next topic here. So, you know, for somebody who doesn't know a lot about shooting, and, I, and you know, I'll put myself in this too. So, you know, backstory, um, you know, I used to live in Montana. And which meant I did a lot of backwoods hiking and things. And I carried a 1911 when I did that, but realizing that when it came to a grizzly bear, eh, <laughs> you know, that was the best I had. So I always kind of had the back of my mind that, all right, well, someday I want to go buy a 44 Magnum kind of guide gun or something. I ended up, never ended up doing it. Um, you know, but it, that made sense, right? Cause that's like more power, it's larger caliber, but um, you know, revolvers, I feel like are, they're way more common than just as a guide gun. So, you know, what kind of benefits do revolvers have over other common carry options? Well, uh, one, one quick sidetrack there or side note, I guess, uh, I saw an article several months ago that studied, I don't know, like 50 bear attacks where, uh, the person being attacked was armed and shooting a bear with almost any caliber handgun would, uh, make the bear leave. So, uh, you're, you're, probably pretty good. I think there were a couple outliers in that, but generally speaking, if you get a, if you connect with pretty much any handgun, that bear is going to be like, yeah, this, this is not worth it and, uh, and move on. Um, but yeah, that is, that is an awesome, awesome use case is that predator, predator defense kind of model. Uh, revolvers are really ammunition agnostic as long as, uh, basically as long as the bullet fits in there diameter wise and it's, um, and it's a functional cartridge, it, it will work. Uh, the, the revolver's not dependent on the power generated by that cartridge to cycle the slide or to operate the handgun in any way. Um, it, the, the, the mechanics of you pulling the trigger rotates the cylinder, aligns, places the cylinder, uh, the specific chamber in the cylinder, and the barrel and alignment. Um, so everything from... Like the from 38 special blanks all the way up to like the heaviest 357 Magnum stuff you 
care to shoot in your gun, your gun will shoot it if it's a 357 Magnum. Um, and there's a wide array of stuff between blanks and 180 grain hard cast lead from Buffalo bore, um, snake shot and wad cutters and, you know, into some of the intermediate 38 special plus P defensive ammo. It, it'll all run just fine. So that's, uh, that's kind of nice. Um, Revolvers typically have the ability to be chambered in more powerful uh, cartridges staying on this theme, like 44 Magnum and and way up from there. Uh, kind of getting off of that into probably what's more relevant to most of the audience, um, self-defense against human predators, human attackers. Um, revolvers are very... Um, very uncomplicated manual of arms as far as making the gun fire, as far as operating, making, turning gunpowder into noise. It's very, very uncomplicated manual of arms. Uh, there's no, you, you pull the trigger and it goes bang. Um, there's, there's no possibility of limp wristing a revolver. If, if you can pull the trigger to, far enough to the rear to cycle the revolver. It will cycle and it's set up for the next shot. Um, there's no, you know, no out of battery malfunctions from limp wristing or anything along those lines. Um, once we get into reloads and malfunctions, because yes, revolvers do malfunctions. Now uh, that manual of arms becomes massively more complicated. Um, but as far as just getting the gun into action, it's, it's very, very easy to do. Very beginner friendly. Um, as far as, uh, as far as shooting the gun accurately, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Caleb Giddings from Gun Nuts Media, but he put together this uh, bell curve of who a revolver is actually useful for. And at the uh, far left end of it, they're really, really useful for rank beginners who uh, won't uh, basically won't take the time or haven't yet taken the time to learn a more complicated manual of arms, very, very useful in that category. And at the other end, they're very, very useful for experts that spend a ton of time learning to operate revolvers because they're going to get as, as much out of that revolver as they could get out of any, out, out of just about any firearm. But in the middle, you have this, uh, huge, huge section of moderately skilled individuals who revolvers are not ideal for because with a little bit more skill, they could be massively better with something like a Glock or a Beretta or, you know, a, a, any form of any high quality semi-automatic handgun. They're not going to reap that same reward from a revolver. So um, on the on the very rank beginner scale, they have that benefit of really uncomplicated manual of arms. They're also very neglect tolerant. So you can load a revolver. Uh, throw it in your desk drawer, and 75 years later, it's probably still going to work. Um, I, I think things get a little bit different when we uh, separate neglect from abuse. Uh, revolvers aren't terribly abuse tolerant, but as far as neglect, they're reasonably well-sealed firearms, especially a lot of the stuff we see with carry that have uh, you know closed uh, back straps uh, where, where the, uh, the hammer is enclosed in some sort of a shroud. There's not a lot of stuff falling into that gun like there might be in a semi-auto. Uh, revolvers are also awesome for those contact distance shots where I may be touching you with the gun, uh, which may foul a semi-auto slide. Uh, it may force the slide out of battery and prevent the gun from firing at all. So there are definitely some use cases for revolvers and uh, 
if, if you want to take the time to learn it, you can be extremely well defended and extremely competent and capable with a revolver still. Okay. So, so you're saying like on one end, you know, you said rank beginner, which is interesting because I was going to ask that about, uh, you know, is a revolver really a good beginner gun? Because so many people will jump right to something like a Glock 19, but you know, so it seems like it's actually really reasonable, reasonable choice. Somebody who is going to buy it and be put it in a shoebox, or hopefully it's not just a shoebox. You may have a little hand safe or something, but then ignore it for years. And then at the other end, you've got your Jerry Michalek who can, you know, <laughs> world record yeah. it. So, so here's my example for this as far as beginner goes. So, uh, my sister uh, owns a handgun and has probably, in the last, I don't know, let's say arbitrarily five years, she's owned that handgun, put maybe 200 rounds through it. And it's a 1911 style, nine millimeter, it's a SIG 938. And I've been asked by her at least twice, hey, is, is my safety is my safety on? And she'll show me the gun. And I'm like, oh my God, what what are you doing? Um, I, I, I would dare anyone just about to, to make a case that a, like a K-frame Smith and Wesson or a Ruger SP 101 would not be a better choice for her. There's, there's no question of, is the safety on or off? And, and that's a single action 1911 style gun with, with a relatively very light trigger. She's probably not the person that that is best served by that 1911 style single action semi-auto she i would say she'd be much better served by a revolver there's you, you look at the side of it and you can see cartridge cases cartridge heads in the cylinder um there, there's no safety you have that heavy 10 11 12 pound trigger um she's not going to be shooting laser accurately with that 938 uh, i i doubt uh, her marksmanship is going to be severely degraded by a revolver trigger versus what her marksmanship would be with a single action trigger. So yeah, I, I think it is a massively better choice for that band of, of skill. Okay. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think, and I know people who are like that. It was one of those funny things with, a uh, we're talking way back. I remember, so I'm going to kind of embarrassing myself but anyway whatever so um way back in the day my when my dad you know he he decided that he wanted to buy a gun and me coming from video gaming as like my, my venue into the shooting sports um i was like you need a usp because <clears throat> counter-strike that's what that's what the ct is using counter-strike so you need a usp <laughs> and, he got, and, he, and he got one a usp compact and uh but knowing nothing about shooting great gun i mean honestly i <laughs> this is what's embarrassing about it is that I didn't even know to clean it first before we just took it out and shot it. And the thing ran forever without ever being cleaned until I finally learned how to actually take care of firearms. Um, <laughs> and then like he gave it to me um, when I was living in Miami and not in a great area. And then uh, ultimately I gave it back to him before I moved to California the first time because I didn't know the rules that yes, in fact I could have brought that with me, but um, you know, but that was one of those funny things of like, I totally see for someone who doesn't really know a lot about it uh, and then isn't going to manage, you know, a, a double action, single action very well, plus the safety mechanisms. And then, you know, all the other issues can come with that. A revolver really does make a lot of sense. Yeah. And I actually have a friend who owns a USP. Uh, it's an HK something. I'm not intimately familiar with their uh, lineup. Really neat gun because you can carry it cocked and locked. Mm -hmm. with a single action safety, 
the safety also functions as a decocker, so you can carry it as a DASA gun. Um, really, really neat gun, but also you have to really, really understand that thing and, and what condition it's in and what condition you're putting it in uh, to be effective with that. All right, absolutely. So actually, it's going to kind of go to the next the next topic here, which is um, I, I kind of want to do a little bit of myth busting, right? So like, what are some of the things that you've heard that people wrongly believe about revolvers? Uh, if your revolver malfunctions, uh, if you get a click instead of a bang, you just pull the trigger again. Um, that solves one very specific type of malfunction, which is a failure to ignite for whatever reason, be it a light strike, a bad primer, a bad cartridge, whatever the case may be. That's the only malfunction that solves, but that is almost gospel handed down from on high that if your revolver malfunctions, all you have to do is pull the trigger again. There are a whole gamut of other malfunctions that your revolver may have um, other than just that light strike or bad primer or whatever the case may be that pulling the trigger again will not fix. In some cases, the, the gun is completely locked up and you just cannot pull the trigger again. Um, that's probably the biggest one I hear. Um, I, For example, I've had... Uh, a backed out ejector rod. So the rod that you press to eject the cartridges is screwed into the cylinder. Uh, those threads can begin to loosen under the force of recoil and everything else you're doing with that gun to the point that it, uh, it pulls itself far enough out of the cylinder that the cylinder will not open. Uh, you can sometimes like beat it open, uh, but that's not great because you risk damaging your revolver. Although if in in the heat of a gunfight, that's probably preferable. Uh, probably get the gun open and get some more rounds in it. However, you have to do that. In almost any other circumstance, it's probably not worth damaging a revolver. So pulling the trigger again is not going to fix that. You, uh, if you have to reload a revolver, there's all sorts of other things that can happen. You can get brass under the extractor star potentially. Um, just the process of ejecting the cartridges can also eject some unburned or unburned powder, other grit and debris, which can find its way under the extractor star, which it only has to be raised a tiny, tiny amount for the cylinder not to close again. Your revolver can go out of time. Um, I've seen parts break. I've seen a cylinder release latch, uh, the little arm that it connects to break in a revolver. There's a ton of malfunctions with a revolver. Uh, uh, Chris Baker at Lucky Gunner is, uh, I would say part of the modern day revolver cognoscenti and he's had revolvers where he pulled the trigger, something broke and the trigger never returned home without him. The, the little trigger rebound spring or rebound assembly malfunctioned and he had to force the trigger back to the uh, at rest position every single time. So there's this whole spectrum of malfunctions that can happen to a revolver. Um, I, I, if you shoot them enough, they will malfunction. I, I hate that adage that, oh, if it malfunctions, you just pull the trigger again. So actually that gets me to like another, I think another common myth I hear. I think there's this this assumption a lot of times that because something is older, then it's simpler. And I think some people think that something like a revolver is in fact simpler than any other modern semi-auto because it's older. It's an older design. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I... I don't know how necessarily simplicity is assessed. Like, is, are we just looking at number of parts? Are we just looking at like, like what exactly are we 
looking at to assess simplicity. We need to define simplicity, but here's what I will tell you. Revolvers rely on a number of parts functioning more or less perfectly in tandem together or within obviously a, an operating envelope together. And there's a lot of angles involved and a lot of edges that have to be uh, interacting with each other correctly. And you don't have that with, with a semi-automatic handgun, which largely works on a uh, horizontal axis and a vertical axis. There's not a lot of these uh, angles where parts have to be kind of, uh, where parts have to be fitted to interact with each other on the, on, on these multi-axis surfaces. Um, yeah, I, I would say if that's our metric of simplicity, revolvers are probably not more simple than semi-autos. Yeah. Oh, from a part standpoint, obviously I think handling is still different, but it also comes back to, like you mentioned, you know, if it gets out of time and that's, I assume that's what you're referring to with all those parts that have to work together. Yeah. So that would be the cylinder not lining up correctly with the barrel and you actually have the bullet striking uh, the forcing cone, the forcing cone is uh, kind of the rearmost portion of the barrel assembly where the bullet is uh, forced after it, as it passes that gap between the cylinder and the barrel, it's forced into the barrel. And if the, if ignition happens just a little bit to the left or the right of center, the bullet can strike that forcing cone and pieces of lead and jacket get shaved off and expelled out through that cylinder gap and obviously not ideal for accuracy and also not ideal for uh, the safe use of that firearm, both to uh, you and anyone around you and also not ideal for the longevity of the firearm itself. Okay. Um, all right. Here's, an, here's another one that I think comes up a lot. Um, so you mentioned that revolvers are actually really good for your kind of brand new, not going to practice a whole lot of shooters. Um, but like one of the ones I see all the time is like snub nose. So I, I used to see this at the gun counters in Montana because I was looking at a guide gun, but I was looking at like five inch barrel, 44 mag. But I see people walk in there and they'd want a 44 mag that was like one of these snubby nose. And I'm just thinking, my hand, that feels like you're going to get smacked with a broomstick every time you fire it. So I feel like that's, that's a common myth too. It's like snub nose is always better for a new shooter. Oh man, that that is... Uh... I'm on a I, <laughs> I'm on kind of a crusade against small revolvers. Uh, I think they're great in some cases. There are uh, people who are willing to put in a lot of time training with them. Um, I think I heard Daryl Bulky. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a, re a retired law enforcement officer with a tremendous amount of experience with revolvers. I think I heard him say that he owns like a super. You know, he owns hundreds of revolvers probably i'm guessing but uh he, he's definitely an enthusiast and also a huge body of knowledge and experience on the topic of revolvers and i heard him say yeah i carry these ultralight airway uh, whatever but i also own the all still versions to shoot with um, people like that that are willing to go to that level of effort to to learn those systems and make them really really effective yeah do whatever you want um, I think the lady that walks to the gun counter and says, hey, I'm looking for my first gun. That is a horrible choice um, because we, <laughs> I, I know I'm beating a dead horse. I've written about this ad nauseum. I've talked about it on other shows, but there's a bunch of factors that make them suboptimal choices for almost anyone. Uh, they're 
typically fairly lightweight. Uh, and there are exceptions to that. My 640 Pro weighs 23 ounces. It weighs more than a Glock 19. Um, but most of them are fairly lightweight. They have fairly small grip surfaces. And the smaller we can make that gun, the more attractive they are to a, a good chunk of concealed carriers. They have short sight radiuses and they have very difficult triggers to master because they're both heavy and they require a long distance of travel. So when we put that all together, you're extending a very lightweight object out into space. You're trying to manipulate a 12, 13, 14, maybe 15 pound lever attached to that object, which is the trigger without moving this you know, one pound object. So you're, you're trying to move 15 pounds without moving that object. You have that tiny sight radius and frequently the sights that are on those guns are garbage. I, I'm not going to say frequently. Well, frequently. <laughs> yeah. Th that, uh, the additive effect of all those things, plus, you know, trying to move your finger through that, you know, maybe three quarters of an inch or inch of trigger travel and having a, you know, a, two finger grip on the gun because it has a tiny little boot grip. The additive effect of all that is it's a really, really difficult gun to shoot. Uh, when you have a new shooter add into that recoil, which even with 38 ammo can, can definitely be intimidating. Um, I used to shoot revolvers exclusively. I kind of got a little bit inured to the, the blast and the recoil and whatever. I, I came to just disregard it a little bit because it was just what every gun I shot did. Now that I'm shooting, you know, a nine millimeter, 1911, three or four times a month, I go back to a really small snubby revolver and I'm like, holy crap. Yeah. I get what everybody's talking about. This thing sucks to shoot. So that additive effect makes that a difficult gun for anyone to operate effectively. And, you know, again, there's awesome use cases for it, uh, for pocket carry for, uh, ankle carry, backup carry as a cop, as anyone's first gun to learn on and to be accurate. Um, I mean, depending on what level of accuracy you demand, really at any distance, it's, it's going to be much more challenging with that lightweight, snubby revolver than, you know, some moderately sized revolver or semi-automatic handgun. And I feel like the same argument comes up with suggesting someone's especially for women uh, to someone suggesting that your first pistol should be this subcompact which i think has the exact same problem right you have short sight radius you have a relatively lightweight gun compared to the weight of the trigger and it just makes it harder to use in general yeah i totally agreed so actually here's another question then um kind of on that topic though is so i don't know how this is a myth or really what or but you know are revolvers harder to shoot well I know there's different techniques in it, but I actually don't really know that very, very well. That's a tough one to answer. I, I with any revolver uh, that you're shooting double action and and defensive use, double action is the only thing that we that anyone really seriously considers. Um, a, a single action revolver um, creates all kinds of problems. If it turns out you don't have to fire that revolver, now you have to lower that hammer with live cartridges underneath it and. Um, you know, you're probably not going to have time to cock the hammer and all these other things. So double action is all we really consider for defensive type purposes. That trigger is long and it's probably going to be fairly heavy, probably somewhere in the range of 10 to 12 pounds. Some are lighter to be sure, but probably in that range. So mastery is maybe a little bit more difficult, but on, on a, you know, a high quality full size or medium size revolver, like a Smith & Wesson K frame or L frame revolver. 
I would say if you went to a, um, you know, went to a, a couple of three day handgun classes with that revolver and, you know, put in a couple days a week of, of dry practice, you could probably get pretty confident with that pretty quickly and, and maintain that competency. I don't, I don't think it's a terribly hard system to learn. Uh, I hesitate to make a judgment about whether it's harder or easier than something else, but I don't, a, a reasonably sized revolver, I don't think is a terribly difficult trigger to, to learn it. But, but like anything else, I, I think hardware is, is a, a vastly secondary consideration to the time and effort and energy you're going to spend actually doing it. Um, I, I mm-hmm. could hand you anything. And if you're not willing to train with it, you're not going to be good at it. Uh, totally. I totally agree with that. Uh, it's all about, you know, it, it, some people just really want to replace practice with new stuff, right? They don't, they don't want to, because getting practice is hard. It costs, it, it's, it costs time. It costs more money in ammo and range fees. If you have to pay a range fee, um, some people just want to chase that shiny object. That's going to make them better. So I I'm trying to bust that myth. So, um, I, on, I, this was not planned. On New Year's Eve, I got this crazy idea, uh, and I'm like, "Hey, here's the thing I'm going to do on the on Revolver Guy this year. I'm going to do 10 minutes, attempt to do 10 minutes every single day of dry practice, or have it average out to that." Because I took a vacation to uh, Ireland and Iceland, where obviously I couldn't dry practice, but um, I'm going to average 10 minutes a day for the entire year. And every two weeks, I basically post a little report about what I focused on, and you know, I, I I've been brutally honest with myself about what days I've done it and what days I haven't. And it's 10 minutes a day. I, in all, I probably got closer to 15 or 20 minutes invested unloading my gun, setting up my little dry fire range and getting my timer out and all that stuff. But, um, 10 minutes a day, everybody does something for 10 minutes a day that is of no use at all. Uh, surfing Instagram or watching, commercials on TV or, or something. Um, take that 10 minutes and turn it into anything you want to be good at, whether it's playing guitar or uh, you know, drawing your handgun or, or whatever. It, it, 10 minutes a day is not going to make you uh, Kyle Lamb. It's not going to make you Ben Stagger. It's not going to make you um, Mozart, but it's going to make you massively better than you were to begin with. Uh, also, 10 minutes a day, I think is probably, I'm, I'm up to about 32 hours so far this year. Uh, and we're recording this at the end of June, 10 minutes a day is better than spending eight hours a day for five days in January and not touching it again. You get recency of experience every single day. Uh, you also get that, uh, that, uh, those repetitions spread out over time. You build that time over time. Um, I, I would take the, let's say the task is to, and I'm stealing this directly from John Hearn. Uh, John has studied a lot about how we learn and myelinate, build automaticity, and he's he's a range master instructor, federal law enforcement officer, and he's pretty much an expert in adult learning. And John told me, um, I'll put it to you this way. The task is to disassemble a SIG P229. Uh, I'm going to take one dude and I'm going to make him do it 100 times a day for five days, and he's not going to touch the gun again. I'm going to take another guy. He's going to do it once a day for a year. 
And then a year later, we're going to bring those two people back. Who do you think is going to remember that skill better? The guy that's done it every day, once for a year, or the guy that did it 500 times at the beginning of the year? It's going to be the dude that did it every single day. There's no question about that. Um, if you're willing to put the time in, uh, yeah, a revolver is not that difficult. As far as working the trigger, not that difficult to master. Now, is the grip any different on that? Uh, yes. Um unfortunately for me, I didn't know that when I started shooting revolvers. So I gripped it like I gripped a 1911 or uh, I actually, in my writing attempt to use the term grasp to disambiguate between the grips that are on the gun and the way my hands are placed on those grips. Um, but yeah, the, the, the way you grasp a revolver, uh, is different than how you grasp a semi-automatic handgun, especially if you're very into that thumbs forward grip, uh, on your on your semis, uh, shooting a revolver is going to be a little bit different, and and it's difficult to explain. But you can lock the thumbs over each other, and on very small revolvers, sometimes that support hand thumb can go uh, back across the webbing of your of your strong strong side hand, strong hand, whatever you want to call it. Okay, yeah, I think that's, that's important to know. But I think you're going to come back to that point of you know balancing out the 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 skill and mindset is so much more important than than just saying you you did it i think honestly i'm guilty of this all the time is like I'll, I'll go through bursts of practicing consistently for a little while and then shiny object comes along and i go look for that instead or i want to pursue something different right, right. consistency matters well i i'm glad i posted that on january 1st because posting that report every two weeks is a big motivator to get off my butt and go outside and dry practice for 10 minutes Oh yeah. I mean, I think that's the accountability piece, right? Um, you, you tell people you're going to do it and they, they in turn hold you accountable for doing that. Hopefully. Right. Right. And you feel pressure. And and there's no, like, there's no actual consequences, but, um, just the, uh, I don't know the, the yeah, that social pressure of you said you were going to do this and, and now it's, uh, now it's April and you're not doing it anymore. So why should I do it? Oh yeah. I know. Here's kind of a follow on question to that, I guess is, it's a gear question, of course. We just got done talking about mindset, but um, you know, I think everybody kind of has a really good hold on. If I'm going to get into a semi-auto pistol, here's I need this kind of holster. I need, you know, maybe a, a way to carry a spare magazine. You know, or if it's like on a battle belt or something. You know, everybody knows what that looks like at this point. But how is that different for a revolver? Oh God, uh, man, you just opened a can of worms. <laughs> so it depends on how you're going to reload your revolver. Um, if you're going, I, I like a technique called the universal revolver reload. Um, my, when it's time to reload my strong thumb, I'm just going to say left and right. I'm right-handed. My right thumb depresses the cylinder release latch. My left hand lets go of the grip and cradles the revolver under the trigger guard rests kind of in the palm of my hand. My fingers push the cylinder out and I invert the revolver muzzle up. Uh, my my left hand is now holding the gun. My right hand slaps the ejector rod, grabs a speed loader or whatever reloading mechanism I'm using, and places cartridges back into the cylinder. And at that point, I reacquire fire and grasp and go back to work. That's not the case with everyone. Some people maintain that grip with their firing hand on the revolver and use their left hand or their, their support hand to get cartridges back into the gun. I, I, I don't have any strong judgments either way. Some people argue, oh, the more dexterous hand should do that more delicate task of getting 
cartridges into the cylinder because you are lining up five or six discrete objects with five or six discrete holes. But I also believe if you trained at that, you could probably be just as competent doing that as I am using my right hand. So I, I don't have a strong judgment. But you need to decide, and that's going to dictate what side you wear your spare ammunition on. Um, I, uh, Since I use my right hand to put that speed loader in, my speed loaders uh, are on my right side just forward of my holster instead of on the left side with, you know, magazines, bullets forward on my, you know, how we how just about everyone runs pistol mags. Um, so that's a, that's a decision point. This is, um, this is where we really get into the world of compromises that is carrying a revolver. So there is not one universal speed loader out there that fits every revolver on the market. There's a couple that come pretty darn close, like five-star firearms and speed bees. They make stuff for a ton of revolvers but not every revolver. So if I get some oddball revolver, something that falls a little, or something that's brand new, uh, I own the new Colt King Cobra and finding anything for that thing is, is a chore. So maybe there's not even a speed loader made for my revolver. Maybe it's one that I don't like because they don't work all the same. So some of them are what I call inline speed loaders. They have an inline motion, meaning I insert the cartridges and I press down on the cylinder and it activates something that releases those cartridges. Or... I call these twisty speed loaders. I insert the cartridges, and then I have to twist a knob clockwise or counterclockwise to release those. I, I'm not a fan of the twisty loaders because that, um, I, I basically like all that motion just in line. It, it seems more efficient to me than having to get the cartridges in, release the body of the loader, grasp the knob, twist it, and then complete that reload. So we have to decide, one, how are we going to reload? What revolver are we carrying? Because that drives what speed loaders we have available. Speed loader pouches are not all made the same. So if you decide I'm going to carry X, Y, or Z speed loader, um, that's cool. You better hope they make a pouch for it. And if they don't, you're not going to be carrying that speed loader. You're going to be carrying it in a, in a hip pocket or something. So there are a million little sub factors to consider with this. Whereas if I carry a Glock 19, every holster in the world is available to me with every possible light laser combination, uh, uh, red dot sights, suppressor height sights, whatever I want to do to that Glock, every holster option in the world is available to me, every magazine pouch, every whatever. If you carry a revolver, you're quickly winnowed down to like, okay, these are my three speed loader options, or these are my two, or this is my one speed loader option. This is the one pouch that works with it. And guess what? It doesn't really work with how I carry. So, um, or maybe maybe you get lucky and it does, but just compromise after compromise when you actually start to carry uh, revolvers. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And it's funny. I, I only have like an inkling of that because for whatever reason, I had this penchant for pistols that aren't all that common. So I, I was always limited by, well, I can't find a holster for that. Or, oh, they don't make it for that combination of, of light or whatever. It's getting better. I'm coming around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it is getting better, and you and you can pretty much find something for for just about anything uh, out there. You you can make it work, and I think that's. <laughs> I almost think I enjoy that challenge of like, hmm, I'm really going to have to track everything down and try stuff out and modify stuff. I think in a way I enjoy that challenge, but it is a challenge. Uh, absolutely. Um, so actually, here's a kind of a going on from here then. So. I think this is kind of a natural segue into, let's say I was going to go out and 
start looking at revolvers this weekend, right? Um, what do I actually look for? Like, how do I know if something is good? Right, right at the beginning, I mentioned Smith and Wesson. You said, "Oh, we'll come back to that." So I assume that's not a, not a good sign. <laughs> but uh, you know, what do I actually look for when I'm trying to pick out a revolver? Um, I would say start with a reputable manufacturer. Well, I would say define your use case. Is this going to be a, a range toy? In that case, buy whatever blows your skirt up. Is it going to be uh, carried as a belt gun for self defense? Is it going? Are you looking for a a pocket gun? Are you looking for a home defense gun, a hunting gun? Um, define your use case. Uh, and, and that will largely dictate appropriate caliber. Next, I would look for a reputable manufacturer. So generally that's, you know, your Smith and Wessons, Ruger's, Kimber's, Colt's. I'm sure I'm probably missing one or two. I don't want to leave anybody out. I'm not purposely uh, denigrating anybody. Actually, I just did a 500 round field report on a Taurus revolver, a compact revolver. I was actually really impressed with it, even though they get a lot of bad press. Um, and I don't get paid by any of these companies. They send me guns and I have to pay my own money to buy ammo and do transfer fees and all that stuff. Um, to just, just so I'm not, I, I don't take any money from manufacturers just so I'm not biased. Um, so I'd look for a, a quality manufacturer and then, uh, boy, there's, there's a bunch of criteria that, uh, can be really subjective, like trigger. Some people really like the Colts trigger. Now that Colt is back in the revolver game with the Cobra and the King Cobra, um, there's capacity, uh, for a long time. If you wanted a very small revolver, that was going to be limited to five, but, uh, with the Kimber K6S, that's almost as small as a J frame. I mean, we're talking hundredths of an inch but it holds six rounds. The big things I would look for though are an excellent trigger and excellent sights. Uh, grips are almost infinitely uh, variable on a revolver. If I don't like the grips that come from the factory on something, I can buy something else and put bigger or smaller or wider or narrower grip panels on there. Uh, that, that Infinitely variable, like I said. But sights are often really difficult to change. Uh, Sometimes we're seeing a trend toward pinned-on front sights that you can pop out a roll pin, throw a night sight or a fiber optic or, or whatever you want in there, which is really, really awesome. For a long time, those milled front sights, hey man, they're on there for the life of the gun. Um, but sights and trigger would be my two probably overriding criteria for anything, which excludes a lot of the Smith & Wesson J-frames. Again, if we're talking about a belt gun, if we're talking about a backup gun for a cop, hey, you may want those, you know, you may not care too much what the sights look like. I would still probably demand an excellent trigger. I'm trying to think of what else. Yeah, I, I guess that pretty much uh, pretty much does it without having any more specificity about use case. Yeah, well, actually, only that, that makes sense, right? At the end of the day, your mission drives the gear and then and that people get too wound up around minutia, right? Buy a quality manufacturer, with a trigger and size that work and then shoot it until you're good with it. Right. One of the, uh, one of the criteria that that gets thrown out a lot is the length of the ejector rod. Um, the ejector rod again is that rod at the end of the cylinder that presses the brass out via the extractor star. Sometimes it's called the, ex the extractor rod, uh, not too wound up on terminology either way. Um, and this is this is a good example of that minutia. People will be like, oh, Colt and the King Cobra is one that got a lot of crap for this. Colt made this awesome new revolver, but put a short ejector rod on it. The ejector rod looks short. It actually ejects almost as far as my GP100's ejector rod, which is almost 
which is substantially longer, almost half again as long as the rod on that Colt. So that superficial factor of what that ejector rod looks like externally has very little impact on how far it actually ejects uh, the brass. That, that that's one of, and also both of the, that is a super super sub factor to how you're interacting with that ejector rod when you get brass out of the gun. If you give it a good firm smack with the shortest ejector rods on the market, I've ha- I have very, very close to a zero malfunction rate on that, or, or almost a zero rate of brass not getting fully out of the cylinder. And it comes down to things like keeping your chambers clean. Revolvers are not maintenance-free. Uh, they're Just like they're not malfunction-free, you have to maintain a revolver. It's, it's not this... There's this mystique of revolvers being ultimately reliable and ultimately, you know, the ultimate maintenance-free handgun. And that's just not the case. Um, so keeping your cylinders clean, keeping um, using a good technique when you reload, those are behaviors that are much more important than that actual hardware. But that's unfortunately not how we make buying decisions or um, carry decisions. So actually, um, just to a question I had, uh, you know, I let I let subscribers know ahead of time that I was going to be talking to you, and one of the questions that I got was, you know, I think every, at this point everybody's pretty familiar with semi-autos. All right, I go to the range. Now, I'm, honestly, I'm not great at this. I don't clean every time I go to the range. I clean when I feel like it needs it. But you know, I get the barrel, I get the slide, I oil it, I lube it, get the ejector, all that stuff. You know, what actually has to get cleaned on a revolver? You know, every few hundred rounds. You just mentioned the cylinders, but like, what else? Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, I carry a, uh, a custom 1911 with very, very tight tolerances, so I clean every single range session without fail. Revolvers, I'm a little more uh, loosey-goosey on. Uh, revolvers, I'll go through, you know, a five, six, seven hundred round course sometimes, depending on the gun, without without touching it at all. And when I when I do a field report on a revolver, we we kind of have a criteria in how we review revolvers. Um, our minimum round counts 500 with no maintenance unless something goes wrong and it needs it. But uh, you should keep your chambers cleaned out. This gets really especially true if you shoot 38 special ammo in a gun that you also shoot 357 magnum ammunition in. Uh, the 38 special cartridge case is shorter, uh, so it creates a carbon ring at the end of the cartridge case. Uh, that will sometimes cause 357 Magnum ammunition to fail to seat fully under gravity alone. Usually you could force it in there with the palm of your hand. Um, and, and I say force, I mean, just give it a gentle push and it'll overcome that carbon ring. But that can also fear with interfere with the brass ejecting uh, because you have this dirt that is interacting with a tenth of an inch of that 357 Magnum case. Uh, so that's an important thing to keep clean. Uh, another really, really important thing to maintain is the underside of your extractor star. And when you press that ejector rod, the star is that thing that interacts with the rims of the cartridges. And gunpowder, dirt, debris can accumulate under there. And it only takes a tiny, tiny amount of stuff under there to elevate that thing to the point where your cylinder will not close. Um, So I'm pretty good about just taking a toothbrush and quickly dusting that out every few hundred rounds or or probably more if I'm going to be carrying that gun. Um, other than that, there's not a whole lot of day-to-day maintenance you, or, or very frequent maintenance you have to do. Um, I do uh, use some hops number nine and a brass uh, bristle brush to knock off some of the carbon that builds up around the forcing cone. Um, 
a lot of it tends to build up there. Um, I do apply a little bit of lubrication to my ejector rod itself because the uh, cylinder spins on that um, or spins on that overall assembly uh, and that ejector rod you want moving nice and smoothly. You don't want it getting hung up at the at the depressed or extended position or anything like that. Uh, you don't want to over lubricate that because again, that lube ends up under the extractor star and it attracts dust and dirt and gunpowder. So um, not a ton you have to maintain, but you, those, those chambers is one that you should probably keep relatively clean. You don't want to shoot 10,000 rounds without swabbing those things out with some, you know, some hops number nine and a, a, a bristle brush every now and then. Okay. So that actually uh, gets to another question on there, just because you mentioned uh, the cylinders and things rotating around. So true or false, bad idea to do the common, go to the gun store, spin the revolvers and flip the cylinders into the, into the, into the gun with one hand, the Hollywood move. Well, how else are they going to know you know what you're doing if you don't do that? <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's a really, really uh, bad idea, especially to spin that thing and slam it shut while it's uh, spinning. It looks really cool, like Boris the Blade and uh, and Snatch. Um, but what you're causing, you're, you're causing the mass of that cylinder. Well, it's it's spinning under under its own inertia. When you slam that thing shut, there's a locking lug that uh, the cylinder interacts with. When you pull the trigger of the gun to fire, that locking lug drops down so the cylinder can can rotate. But generally, it keeps it locked in place with one of the chambers aligned with the barrel. That's what it, what keeps it in place when it's aligned, uh, when any of the chambers is aligned with the barrel. So that centrifugal force is suddenly transferred to that lug very, very quickly. And on some of your heavier revolvers, your Magnum revolvers, you know, like your 44s, your 454s, 460s, um, that can very, very quickly break or bend or otherwise damage that that lug and that's that's just not a good thing to do and on smaller revolvers probably a little bit less likely to occur but then again those lugs are lighter weight material and smaller in the smaller revolvers too so yeah that is never a thing i would do with my revolvers and i better not catch you doing them with my revolvers so uh, yeah don't don't do that at the gun store so i, I hope everybody everybody got that <laughs> don't do that <laughs> Don't, don't, oh, no. don't. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's one of the myths. <laughs> I'm glad we busted. <laughs> All right. So here's, I, I got one more question for you. And this is kind of the one I like to ask everybody is, uh, this doesn't have to be about revolvers. It's kind of more of a cultural thing, but you know, what is something that you wish gun owners would stop doing right now? Oh man. Um, and feel free to take your time to answer that one. If you need to, it's not a, not a lightning round. Man, there are a, uh, I feel like there's a bunch of those and I feel like I'm going to, no matter what, I'm going to probably piss someone off here. Um, man, I, God, I, I, this could just open the door in so many different directions. I don't, I, I don't even know what to say right now. Um, I would like to see less virtue signaling in this community. Um, uh, I would like to see more, I, I guess, silent professionals. And by silent, I don't mean you're not going on podcasts, you're not writing articles, you're not commenting on posts. But there's certainly a lot of um, a lot of bravado, a lot of um, 
machismo that goes to this community. Like, oh, if I, you know, if you're found here at night, you'll be found here in the morning kind of, uh, uh, kind of machismo. There's a lot of, uh, disregard for the legality. That's probably, that's probably the single base thing. Uh, disregard for the legality regarding self-defense, uh, with lethal force, um, the legalities of concealed carry the, uh, I don't know, man, I, I could go on and on and on. I, I think, uh, no, I, I totally get it. Right. Cause that's like, it's people who, it almost comes across as disrespectful to the fact that you own weapons and that's, that's cause what they are. It's like, and you're not respecting that fat and treating it like you don't have, I had an article about you know martial arts where you, I, I treat marksmanship as if it's a martial art, and nobody questions when you go do jujitsu after work every day because that's all oh, you're you're taking care of this and you're learning good skills in the way. And I think a lot of what you're saying is the reason why people kind of will look at you askew if you say, "Oh, I'm going to go to the run, going to go to the gun range every day," or, or because then it's suddenly like that that association pops up versus this, "Oh, wow, that person's being respectful and like, taking care of what they need to take care of." Right. I, I, I guess the biggest thing I wish gun owners would stop doing is blithely ignoring the things that are suboptimal or less than ideal um, in, in the gun community. I constantly hear like, oh, gun people are the friendliest people you've ever meet. And, and that's not the case. Gun people are a cross section of humans, which means some of them are awesome people and some of them are assholes. Um, and sorry, I don't know what you're, uh, <laughs> what you're rating it. Like some of them are not nice people. Um, and to, to blithely say, Oh, gun owners are the nicest people you'll ever meet is, is patently false. Uh, because I could show you some that are not nice people. Um, you know, ignoring the fact that, uh, we just, and this is not across the board. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Carl Wren. Um, yeah. yeah. Carl's, uh, most recent book, and I forget the name of it. Um, details the state of training in the firearms community and what he found. Uh, he looked at the state of Texas out of all the concealed carry permit holders in Texas, less than 1% or about 1% of them seek any training beyond the basic state mandated minimum training to get a concealed carry permit. And those are already like kind of a cut above most gun owners as far as training goes. Um, so the state of training and competence and, uh, skill at arms in the gun owner community, quite honestly, it was not great. Kind of sucks. Um, and I, I, I don't like we ignore a lot of uh, a lot of problems in this. Um, I, again, the the training versus uh, hardware mentality is is a big thing that drives me nuts. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know, man. <laughs> I I don't have a real cogent answer, but uh, um, I think that was a great answer. It's that pay attention to uh, the ability to to do rather than be. If that makes sense, it's going back to an old Air Force thing that my commander used to tell me. But you know, the idea of you actually do these things because they're important to you, and you practice it, and it's you're not just picking up the image. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer in the concept that that the way we become great as as a nation as a community of gun owners as a community of of whatever as a whatever group tribe subset we're organizing ourselves into is not by beating our chest and saying how great we are it's identifying the problems that we have and fixing them applying solutions to them uh, rather than just saying no it's not a problem we're the greatest x y or z um the way we actually become great is to 
identify those problems and fix them kind of like, um, you know, the way you actually become rich is not to live like you're rich. Um, that, and, and yeah, hell you could, you could apply it to almost any subset of people and there's, there's problems with every group and subgroup and culture and country and state and whatever else. But, uh, I think that's my general kind of take on that. I think that is a perfect answer, honestly. And I think, I think that's actually going to kind of round things out. So Justin, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, where can people go find more about you or connect with you? Uh, you can find out more about me at revolverguy.com. Uh, just a quick caveat. I'm definitely not, uh, not an expert. I'm just a dude that's, uh, on the journey too. So, um, yeah, that's it. Okay. All right. Well then, uh, Justin, thank you very much for coming on today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Man, thank you, Matt. All right, guys, Matt Robertson back with my key takeaways from this episode. So we covered a lot of ground here. And honestly, I'm having trouble narrowing it down to just a few points. So I'm going to go ahead and hit these as we go. Ready? Let's get to it. So number one, learning revolver is a lot like learning how to drive a stick shift. You know, a lot of people kind of these days ignore driving stick shift because there's so many automatics out there. And if we're trying to compare this to pistol shooting, then that's kind of like most people are shooting semi-auto, double action, single action or Glocks, or Striker Fires, or whatever, and we're totally ignoring an entire class of pistols. But yet, those pistols are still very common out there, so it's really worth our time to go learn how to shoot a revolver well. If for no other reason, then that puts you in a situation that if you have to pick one up and handle it, you at least know how to do that. Now next, one of the big takeaways I thought was super interesting was the revolver bell curve. Justin talked about this for a little bit. He mentioned that there is a curve where most people who train a little bit with pistols and firearms are going to be falling to the middle of the curve, and revolvers are not necessarily the best situation for them. Instead, revolvers are really good for people at the total left end of the curve, the rank beginner who's not going to train, who's not going to practice, who knows very little about maintenance, and they're also good for people at the far right of the curve who are going to learn and practice and do really well with them. Now, I want to focus on that left end of the curve here where we're talking about the rank beginner. Everybody knows the stereotype in their mind of somebody who's going to buy their first revolver, they're going to stick it in a sock drawer or in a box at the top of the closet, and they're going to forget about it. And Justin made the point that I think was actually really good, that revolvers are much more tolerant of being left alone. There's no, there's no springs being compressed that can wear out. There's no issues with loading mechanisms. It's just a cylinder with its five or six shots, and you pick it up and you squeeze the trigger. And along with that, Justin made the point that we really should be talking about double action use for any defensive revolver. Along with that, Justin made the point we really should be talking about double action systems for when it comes to self-defense. Here, let me play that clip for you. Defensive use, double action is the only thing that we, that anyone really seriously considers. Um, a, a single action revolver um, creates all kinds of problems. If it turns out you don't have to fire that revolver, now you have to lower that hammer with live cartridges underneath it and um, you know, you're probably not going to have time to cock the hammer and all these other things. Now, another really good takeaway from this conversation came back to what's good for a beginner. 
I asked the question about snub-nosed revolvers because everybody knows that idea of you walk into a gun store and there's always that person in there looking for their first pistol and someone pulls out a snub-nosed 38 or 45, slaps it on the counter and says, this right here is what you need. And that's actually a really bad idea because they're hard to shoot, they're hard to handle, right? So pick something a little bit longer, a little more manageable, a little, a little easier to control. Now, next in the conversation, we started getting to a couple clips here. I'm going to rapid fire these at you, but they're all about the effectiveness of practice that you really do need to spend time dry firing and practicing. So let's go ahead and load those up. On New Year's Eve, I got this crazy idea uh, and I'm like, hey, here's the thing I'm going to do on the on Revolver Guy this year. I'm going to do 10 minutes attempt to do 10 minutes every single day of dry practice or have it average out to that because I took a vacation to uh, Ireland and Iceland where obviously I couldn't dry practice, but um, I'm going to average 10 minutes a day for the entire year. 10 minutes a day, everybody does something for 10 minutes a day that is of no use at all. Uh, surfing Instagram or watching commercials on TV or, or something. Um, take that 10 minutes and turn it into Anything you want to be good at, whether it's playing guitar or uh, you know, drawing your handgun or, or whatever, it, it, 10 minutes a day is not going to make you uh, Kyle Lamb. It's not going to make you Ben Stagger. It's not going to make you um, Mozart, but it's going to make you massively better than you were. All right, guys, there's another big takeaway. Take 10 minutes out of your day, which really is not that much time, and do something productive with it, like practice with your firearms. It could be dry firing, could be positional shooting, doesn't really matter what it is. The context of this conversation is about practicing with your pistols, but it applies to everything. You would be absolutely stunned to see how many instances where professional users don't actually practice that much and they're not all that confident. We've all heard stories about law enforcement officers who unload entire magazines without hitting targets like they're a bunch of Star Wars stormtroopers, right? Well, that's the reality, is that most people carrying firearms today don't actually practice with them nearly enough. And that's what we're trying to drive home with you guys today. Now, last point we're gonna talk about here is the compromises involved with carrying a revolver. Because everybody is so used to walking around with a really common standard semi-automatic pistol where we get the holsters, we carry magazines in our left side or in our belts. We know exactly how that looks, but with revolvers, it's a very different story. Here's that clip. This is where we really get into the world of compromises that is carrying a revolver. So there's not one universal speed loader out there that fits every revolver on the market. There's a couple that come pretty darn close, like Five Star Firearms and Speed Bees. They make stuff for a ton of revolvers but not every revolver. So if I get some oddball revolver, something that falls a little, or something that's brand new, uh, I own the new Colt King Cobra and finding anything for that thing is, is a chore. All right, just went on to keep talking more about that subject, but I think you got the key takeaway right there is that shopping around for a revolver is not like it is for, you know, a Glock or a CZ or a SIG, right? Like there is no universal magazine carrier. Like I can get an HSD I can get an HSGI taco or whatever that's going to carry just about any magazine I can toss in there. And everybody makes holsters for every kind of pistol. Well, that's not true. I shouldn't say that because I've run into that problem in the past. But you know what I'm talking about is that it's just much easier to buy a piece of gear for a standard pistol than it is a revolver. And that's something you need to be aware of when if you choose to carry a revolver day to day or keep one in the safe for home defense. 
Now this last clip I'm going to play for you actually doesn't have much to do with revolvers, but it came out of the lightning round at the last couple minutes of the interview where we're talking about things that we wish people would stop doing. It's the same question I asked to every interviewee, and everybody always has a slightly different answer, and I thought Justin's were really insightful. So here's his answer, or part of his answer, where we're talking about things that we wish we could improve about gun owners and gun culture. I'm a big believer in the concept that that the way we become great as as a nation, as a community of gun owners, as a community of, of whatever, as a whatever group, tribe, subset we're organizing ourselves into is not by beating our chest and saying how great we are. It's identifying the problems that we have and fixing them, applying solutions to them, uh, rather than just saying, no, it's not a problem. We're the greatest X, Y, or Z. Um, the way we actually become great is to identify those problems and fix them kind of like, um, you know, the way you actually become rich is not to live like you're rich. And that is our on target quote of the day. All right, guys, that's going to wrap up episode number four of Everyday Marksman Radio. Thanks for listening. And once again, if you want to look at any of our show notes today, you can find them at everydaymarksman.co slash revolver. Also, I really would appreciate it once again if you could leave me a review, comment, come by the website, and subscribe. Just go out and participate with the rest of the community, guys. All right, that's it. Until next time, catch you later.